If you start by thinking about the people who really need it most and are the ones who are going to benefit the most, then ultimately the solution is just a better solution for everybody. Hey, Ayushi. Hey, Caesar. Uh, so, what's happening today? Today, we have a very special person in our podcast. She's a former college classmate of mine, a good friend, and now is at the Google Creative Lab in New York. Nicole Bluel is going to be with us today and talk to us a little bit about the various projects projects that she's worked on while she's been at Google. And, you know, she'll be speaking more as Nicole than as, like, the ambassador for all of Google. And we're hoping we can get, you know, a bit of an understanding of how a big technology company like Google sees their role um, in the greater public and civic spaces. Yeah, because they're in all of our lives, so I'm yep. sure she's going to have something to say about that. <laughs> So the disclaimer on our show is you are not hearing from Google today. Yes. You're hearing from Nicole Bull, who is phenomenal and happens to work at the Google Creative Lab in New York. Right. <laughs> so my first question to you was going to be, how have you learned like to see your sort of like community base, if you will? You know, like how do you envision, if at all, the sort of like public, quote unquote, that you feel like you're serving? Yeah. How do I even begin to answer that? Because mm -hmm. I think that the truth is, in some ways, we really do want and ultimately, the goal would be to build things for everybody. Mm. Right? That's a very, not only a, a very googly thing, but mm -hmm. like, for myself, I'd love to build things that kind of impact as many people as possible. Mm -hmm. But I think what I've realized more and more as kind of time has gone on and I've worked on different projects that sometimes it's less so about impacting as many people as possible and really impacting the people who need it the most. And I think that's very similar to some of the the trends and the ways that you guys are thinking about this too, from more of like a you know public or civic side of things. How can we bring in the people who haven't necessarily been brought into the conversation before? Because that's where we're going to learn the newest things and be able to do the most innovative things. Because these are these are the communities that haven't historically been served or represented. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know. I've I've worked on a whole bunch of different things where you kind of you spot you spot smaller problems here or there that maybe feel like they target more specific groups of people, and then you realize that actually by solving the needs of that community, you wind up solving the needs of many, mm. many, many more communities. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I, I think in general, I try to approach the kinds of projects that I take on or the things that I get interested less in, like, I want to find a community necessarily more just like, I want to, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not trying to target mm -hmm. one specific group, but rather like, okay, who actually could we do the most for right now? Mm -hmm. And how might that like, you know, serving that target population end up benefiting so many other people, like you were saying, right? So like, that's something I find super interesting. I mean, the recent project that you guys just released and that you were a big part of, Live Caption, is so cool. Like, I think that's, I mean, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, totally. So this is this is one that I'm super excited about. We just announced in May a product called Live Caption, which captions basically any media playing on your device. So if you think about it back in like 2009, YouTube added automatic captioning to every video on YouTube. Mm -hmm. But we were kind of thinking, what about all of the content that's not on YouTube, right? Mm -hmm. If I'm just on my phone and I receive a Snapchat video or Instagram video or there's a video on Twitter or I get an audio message in WhatsApp or you know what I mean? It goes on mm -hmm. and on and on. 
why can't all of that stuff also be automatically captioned? And we began really by working with the deaf and hard of hearing community when we were Mm. thinking about live captioning, because to them, captioning of content isn't just a nice to have. It's actually what makes that content accessible. And so by really solving for that community's needs and understanding what it was that they needed, we were able to kind of like build this feature that in solving for their needs actually really solved for everybody's needs. So I'm, you know, I'm someone who identifies as hearing. I use captions all the time, right? Like I'm taking the way to work and it's just super loud and I'm missing the things that are being said as I go in and out. And it's like captions help me with that. Or I don't know, we've probably all been in a situation where like trying to actually watch a video in school or <laughs> in a meeting and it's like, you know what I mean? But but if you start by thinking about the people who really need it most and are the ones who are going to benefit the most from that technology, mm-hmm. then ultimately the solution mm-hmm. is just a better solution for everybody. It's that digital curb cut mm. effect. Yeah, that's really right aligned with that our design for the margins mm-hmm. kind of theme, uh, framework, or I should say principle. So I'm I'm curious, because I love this idea. I love the way you're talking about it. It's really practical, like, you know, kind of working with these folks, have a particular issue, and then it actually works for everyone. I usually ask you to begin with about this question, well, who's the public that mm. you're engaged with? And I wonder, do you see what you're doing really as, are you trying to do something that actually is even though you're coming from a perspective of working a particular group and you know it's going to affect the larger, what are you trying to do as it relates to the broader public? I mean, are you, what's your end game? Where are you actually, where are you headed with all this? You have different projects you're going after. Mm. There must be some frame that you're holding about how you think about impact the public, what we're challenged with and how you're chipping away at that challenge. Yeah. I think, and especially right now, I've definitely had a lot more of a focus recently on accessibility. Mm -hmm. And I would say kind of my hope is just to make the world a little more accessible. (laughs) I can kind of summarize Mm -hmm. that way. But but even before I got into really some of the work from an accessibility standpoint, it was really just, I think, about elevating voices that we maybe don't as often hear from Mm -hmm. and giving everybody that platform to speak and to be heard and to have that kind of impact. So even when I think about some of the projects from an accessibility standpoint that we've been working on, to me, part of it is less so just about actually building the technology that makes something a little more accessible, but actually like really elevating the voices in the community that have been trying to do this for so long and need Mm. a big platform, a big technology to kind of come and like support them and champion the work that they've been doing and acknowledge that this has actually been going on way before I even stepped into this, you know, Mm -hmm. like that's really, I think the best thing that I can do Mm -hmm. is to kind of like help bring those voices into the conversation and understand Mm -hmm. like, what are the problems that you're trying to solve? How can we help you solve those problems? And then how can we make sure that you get the credit for solving those problems? Mm. How did you even start upon that? Like, that's incredible. That's your perspective, you know, in the work that you have. And like, it sounds like you're using this you know, ridiculously (laughs) big Google platform (laughs) to like basically amplify the voices of, you know, people that don't otherwise have access to that sort of platform. But like, how did you even get there? Like what, what was your sort of like thought process or because there's so many people that work for not just Google, but like sort of similar, you know, platform technology companies and the chance of them taking accessibility on as like their issue is 
it feels like it's less heard of. So, you know, how how did how did you get there? Yeah, I mean, there are a few different ways of kind of breaking that question down. Okay. I think um, I, in terms of stepping into like more of the accessibility work, I I kind of had an opportunity to get involved in sort of champion a project. And I think truthfully, because of a lot of things that were that I was experiencing in my personal life led me to want to take on that project, like even, even more so and mm. really push it through mm. because there was so much that I just really personally believed in. So there was a little bit of a, of a personal angle, I guess. But in terms of the approach of kind of uplifting the voices, I guess what I really realized when I was kicking off kind of that first project was it's like, I don't know anything. Mm. Like, I don't, I don't know enough about this space to in any way be considered the person or the expert who should be talking about this. And I recognize that. And so if I actually want to to move this forward in any way, <laughs> like I need to talk to people who actually are the experts, mm-hmm. you know? And it's a lot more credible to hear from somebody else who is an expert when they say, this is what I need, than to hear from me being like, I think this is what the, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and, so, and so when you, when you kind of have that approach of like, I'm going to just recognize how little I actually do know and put all of my effort into understanding like who it is that actually knows what they're talking about, <laughs> then I can, then I can lean on them as a partner to be like, all right, this is how we can push this through together. Like I've got this platform, I've got this role we have the ability to kind of do xyz but you're the one with all the credit here so Mm -hmm. let me you know what i mean Mm -hmm. a very (laughs) let's like actually partner together in this wow i love that humility so much i mean like just that quick recognition of like i don't know any i don't know this you know is is Mm -hmm. like admitting that is such a big first step i mean we you know caesar has has played a really big part in my understanding like this one, you know, quote by Carl Moore and understanding the way in which struggle and interdependence is a really big part of how not just democracy, but like community is built. And hearing you say that is making me think a big part of recognizing interdependence through struggle is being willing to admit that you don't know something or being willing to admit that you're like in some way lesser than, right? And that like, you're not going to use the fact that like Google has solved like X problem to then believe that you could solve every other problem in the world, right? Like kind of just admitting that this is maybe my niche, but these are all things that are outside of that niche is such a big part of maybe understanding interdependence and being a bigger part of a community. And I just, I love, I don't know, that's like, that's really resonating with me right now. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, you hold that and you step into this space with a lot of humility, but what happens when you show up in some of these groups and communities? Do they like automatically accept that humility or they say like, okay, what do you really want to do? <laughs> and why are you really here? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. And I, I think it, again, honestly depends on what it is that we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. What happened with like the live, the live caption one? What was that like when you walked in, you were like, okay, here's the heart of hearing community. Were they like skeptical that you were talking to them or what was their, yeah. Truthfully, not even. Okay. I've tried to do a very good job of making it very clear in the community that I am not about to come in and try to take credit for something that actually I'm having somebody else do all of the all of the work for, right? So mm-hmm. if I'm coming into a community like, hey, I want to build this thing that really helps you, mm-hmm. it's like, I want to give you, first of all, I want to make that technology 
for you. Mm -hmm. And then I also want to like elevate you as a part of the process of having created that. Mm -hmm. And so the relationship building, first of all, is so, so, so important. Mm -hmm. But then I think the second part of it is understanding what I do have the opportunity to come in. You know what I mean? Like what is the right space for me to take on a project or not? Because Mm -hmm. Yes, like I am somebody who works in technology. And so should I be coming in and trying to get involved in, you know, projects that are related, maybe like, you know, to to policy or to government design? No, that's not the right, that's not the right space. And that's not the right thing that me and more of a technology role Mm. has the room to play in or the credibility in. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to making technology more accessible, Mm -hmm. then guess what? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> and, and it's actually, it's then actually an exciting thing of like, oh, here's somebody from a big company that we maybe be used to think of as inaccessible in terms of being able to actually like, you know, even meet someone from there or, you know, mm-hmm. who actually wants to like use exactly what that company is designed for mm-hmm. to like help solve mm-hmm. problems. Mm-hmm. Then I think that all of a sudden, it's like, okay, you've identified the right problem to be solving. You're, you are identifying the right people to be bringing into the conversation. Mm-hmm. And you're not in any way trying to take credit mm-hmm. or fall into any of the kind of pitfalls that you do very often see mm-hmm. when it comes to maybe the way in, in which people from this community mm-hmm. are, are represented or not credited or mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it is really about building building the partnership and the relationship. And in that example, we had, we had brought in a couple of designers and advocates from the community to actually sit with us and workshop with us and take their feedback and build it into the product. And even just ask them like, is this, is this what you want? Like, is this right? Is this wrong? How should this look? And, and then kind of kept them like involved throughout. And so it really did feel, I think a lot more like, um, like a meaningful partnership, you know? Mm-hmm. No, I, I want to go back to something else you just said, which I think is really fascinating. And I'm going to paraphrase it in my own way. So uh, I hope it sounds familiar <laughs> to you. Uh, <laughs> but part of what I heard you, you know, recognizing is that, okay, look, I sit in a particular position of power around a certain kind of thing. That's technology. I know something about it. I'm in a company that does all of that. And if I'm going out, into the community that I had to be responsible about where that power lies, right? And you're saying where it lies for me is I do stuff around technology, right? And I'm not going to abuse this power by saying, oh, by the way, I can do something else about your housing stuff too, because <laughs> that's not my lane. My lane is really right here on this really narrow thing. That's what I do. That's how I can be in relationship with you. I actually think that's really important because a lot of times it's funny, uh, early on in our season, we talked with someone named Eric Gordon. He, we were talking about this whole issue about how a lot of players, corporations, and so on and so forth are entering the civic space. And he was saying, no, they need to stay out. You know, they're really transactional. They need to stay in the space mm-hmm. they're supposed to be in. But I think there's an analogy here, not even about you being transactional, just saying, like, if you're really going to engage with the public community and you're doing it from particular business or particular expertise, then do it from that expertise and don't leverage that power that you have in the expertise to go into other areas. And I think that's really, really important. And I teach here in the Department of Urban Studies and Planning. Ayushi was there because there's this other thing that I think gets in the way of that. A lot of times people who are like in our program 
have a paralysis of working with communities sometimes because they feel like, what if I, I don't know enough? And maybe part of what you're representing here, no, it's not about you not knowing enough. It's about you knowing what you know mm. and being mm-hmm. clear about that to people so they can then know how to engage with you. Yeah, totally. And I want to also build off of that and say that that to me doesn't only end with like where I work, but I think it's something that everybody can recognize for themselves as individuals in any capacity that they want to get involved, right? So even outside of work, I do come from like a marketing background, right? So if I wanted to maybe get involved with a nonprofit organization or some sort of community, right, and help them, like I recognize that my strength is in storytelling and that's probably where I can provide the most value. Mm. It's not in legal advice or financial (laughs) advice, you know what I mean? And that's something that just me as an individual in any way that I'm looking to get involved really with anything can think about too, right? Meanwhile, maybe somebody else their expertise is actually in finance or whatever, right? So they shouldn't be joining a nonprofit board trying to give maybe marketing (laughs) advice. Um, But there's ways that everybody at an individual level, even independent, you know, of where they work, Mm. like that is something that you, I think everyone should be weary of. And it's a strength, right? It's not that, it's not a bad thing that Mm -hmm. I don't have a background in finance or legal or whatever it is, right? It's just a strength that I recognize that mine is in maybe storytelling or in product development. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, you know, that kind of like introspection and self-awareness is such a big part of where we ended season one. You know, it was like this recognition that in order to be able to engage effectively with other members of the public or other parts of the community, it's about recognizing like who you are and where you stand, you know, and, and where you shouldn't stand. <laughs> right. And that's and that's really powerful. I One thing I want to like that I'm really curious about and want to pick up on is this Morse code project that you were doing. Totally. So we met this really incredible woman, Tanya Finlayson. She basically found her voice through Morse code. And what I mean by that is that when she was born, she was born with cerebral palsy and she couldn't speak. And she used to have to use like a word board to communicate. So imagine being constrained by few words on a physical board that Mm. someone would hold up and she would have to point her head to one of the words to be able to speak, right? So then what she discovered at some point, I think in the 80s actually, was Morse code, which is a dot and a dash. So it only requires two buttons to be able Mm. to communicate as a way for her to actually be able to communicate. So now with only two buttons, rather than if you think about the standard keyboard that has like 26 Mm -hmm. buttons plus all the numbers, et cetera. Now she essentially had this way through only two buttons to be able to express herself freely. Mm. And so she had to essentially build her own Morse code device that would translate the dots and dashes into letters. And, you know, now she uses that to kind of like type anything, emails, Facebook posts, et cetera. It's awesome. And that isn't something that is widely available to many people Mm -hmm. in her situation or to parents of children in her situation. So she was really, really interested in being able to open up that access mm-hmm. and essentially make a Morse keyboard available for free on the devices that are already in our pockets, mm. our phones, right? Mm. So we essentially worked with her to, to build a Morse code keyboard into Gboard, which is the Google wow. keyboard. So, you know, if you have if you have an Android phone or if you use Gboard on iOS, there are different keyboards for different languages, right? Mm-hmm. So there's the English keyboard, there's Cyrillic keyboard, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So now there just is a Morse code keyboard, which allows That's anyone to basically awesome. using only a dot and dash type 
and it gets translated into the the Latin alphabet characters. Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> That's so cool. And so, like, I, that project, I mean, after I read about it, it made my hair rise. I mean, hearing just her sort of evolution in speaking in Morse and, like, it talks about, I think the one article I read was like, you know, her first words, like her dad equipped her with this like keyboard and her first words were like, you're an old fart dad, you know? <laughs> and he starts like laughing, but also crying. And it's this like very emotional experience to be able to communicate. I mean, like, I'm gonna have a moment, but like as someone who talks a lot <laughs> and, like, <laughs> and like now basically gets like, you know, kind of half paid by MIT just to be speaking on mic, <laughs> like, communication is such a big part verbal communication is such a big part of my lived experience and like I can't imagine being born to not be allowed to do that and so wow I'm like actually gonna start crying um but like reading that piece was so powerful for me because it made me think about like all the people in the world that like don't have the things that we take for granted and I I'm just so curious as to like how you know, you guys even found Tanya or like how she found you or, you know, you talked a lot about the importance of relationships. Like how do you as an individual in this massive organization, I mean, Google has how many employees now? Oh, I don't even know. It's huge. It's like, because they're ridiculous, right? So like, how do you as one person in this like massive sea of Googlers even begin to like build these relationships to expand the sensibility of of this organization you're a part of? Like, how did that even happen? How did that relationship happen? I mean, Honestly, as <laughs> she is the expert in Morse code and assistive technology. Like mm. she just rises to the top of that. And mm-hmm. interestingly, like it's all about building your network and also like really good research skills, right? <laughs> and so but we kind of we reached a point where like a few of the different folks that we already had relationships with in just kind of the like accessibility community eventually like it felt like all roads pointed to Tanya, mm. which was really exciting. And something else that I just want to add on, not related to this, but kind of to an earlier point that you mm-hmm. made. I think what's cool and what's important about this one is it really is all about basically just creating more options, right? Mm-hmm. Like I think an important note with this project, or at least the way that I personally think about it is like Morse code is not going to be the solution for everybody, mm-hmm. right? Everybody's needs are so different and so unique and what works for Tanya isn't necessarily going to work for somebody else but if you can have the more options you can have and the more options you can have for free and without having to you know purchase an expensive piece of equipment Mm. only to then find out that that option actually doesn't work for you and now Mm. you're out on them you know Mm. that's really that's kind of the best thing you can do and so it's hard because especially I think as we try to think about in you know in general everybody kind of has this question of like what is going to be the return on my investment essentially yeah. right like right. how can I prove that putting in the hours and the time and the resources to this project is going to be worth it sometimes that's just not always the right way to approach problems mm. and it is more to recognize you know what this isn't necessarily going to help everybody but if it can really help one person then then that is worth it. It actually just makes me want to answer this question. So like there are millions of people in the world, probably with millions of different needs. How do you decide and how do you convince? How do you decide what you want to work on and then how do you convince others inside of Google that this is the one thing we should do now? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I wish there... <laughs> 
I wish there was a clear answer. To that. <laughs> <laughs> but I think some, sometimes it again it is just about what do I really think is the right lane for us to be mm. driving in, right? Like the live caption example, I think is a good one because automatic captions was something that Google add, or that YouTube added, YouTube's on my Google, to every video on YouTube, right? Mm-hmm. And so this question of just like, well, why can't we do that on everything outside of YouTube too? It's like, it's this perfect space of, oh yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense of a problem that we are uniquely capable of solving, right? Mm-hmm. It's a problem that there is a really big need for, mm-hmm. right? You have all of the right factors like in place at the same time. Mm-hmm. In terms of like anything else, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I wish that there was like one clear good ask or path, but I think that's that's part of why I still have a job. Like, because <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's basically my job to try and like kind of figure that out. And as our team comes up with with cool ideas or identifies cool opportunities. It's like, okay, well, is is there a there there, mm. first of all? Mm. And if yes, what do we need to do to, to actually make it happen? That's my exciting challenge. <laughs> so has there been a there that was there, but it wasn't the right there for Google that you were really excited about? Like, oh, here's an idea. Oh, it's just not in our lane, but... Mm. We're not like uniquely equipped to be able to address it, even though we want to. Like, yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. I mean, there are definitely a lot of things that I get really excited about and just want to work on, but have to recognize that maybe in my, in my more personal life, but like as a Google project, not so much. And especially even in thinking from like an accessibility standpoint that ranges from maybe legislation or like societal challenges or I mean, medical and health related things. Mm-hmm. And all of that is kind of like, that's just not the right space mm-hmm. for me to be bringing the technology company into like that's not the right fit but it is something that maybe outside of work I can try to get involved in so yeah I think it again when it's like I have an opportunity to leverage this kind of like technology company that I am a part of to activate from a technology side of things Mm -hmm. that normally feels like it makes a lot of sense but things outside of that that space it just isn't the right and it wouldn't feel right, you know? Mm. Feel right. Mm. I mean, that's an amazing commentary on, like, self-regulation, you know? Because I think, like, when talking to, you know, our first episode this season with Eric Gordon, we were thinking, again, a lot about, like, we started asking this question, as I mentioned earlier. We started asking the question in the season two trailer about the role that non-traditional actors should play in shaping civic life. And Eric basically came in and was like, well, why should they even be playing a role? Like, why should they be trying to work on public life when their job is to sell you cars? You know, Mm, like, why should they be a part of that? That's almost muddies the sort of clarity in the transactions that they're in charge of and makes them kind of like greenwashes them to make them feel like they're doing more and, and sort of almost deludes even the consumer into thinking that the company is doing more. And the opposite of that would then be like, in Eric's perspective, at least, like, the sense of how can companies self-regulate? And what you're describing is kind of really beautiful because it's, like, you're not even thinking about it as, like, self-regulation. You're just thinking about it as, like, am I uniquely equipped to solve this problem? Is this within my wheelhouse? And if it's not, let's not try to convince ourselves that we somehow are equipped. Let's just be cool. real about, like, what we can and can't do. 
you know? And I think that's mm-hmm. like a really, that's what I'm hearing at least. And that seems like a really incredible way to, yeah, to kind of like draw those lines that can otherwise be kind of easily muddied. That's, I mean, that's amazing. One thing that like also comes to mind for me is the, you know, emoji project that you worked on, you know, as as someone who's been a friend of yours, I know that how passionate you are about women's issues and women in the workplace. And, you know, I remember one of the first sort of messages I got in our like sort of women's group chat <laughs> from you was about you having worked with a team to now almost like what tripled the emoji keyboard, the original emoji <laughs> keyboard by adding in all of the like female versions of every emoji that was on the keyboard at the moment. So it was like doctors were portrayed as men or like, you know, firefighters are portrayed as men. And you were like, no, like why should there only be a male depiction of a firefighter or of a doctor and only a female depiction of a dancer? Like, why is that the case? And you went in there and just like changed all of that. (laughs) And, and, And like, I don't know, were you also a part of the like multiple like skin tones for every emoji as well? Well, so the the skin tones was something that was, I guess, a little bit before me. Okay. But yeah, when we then proposed adding new professions and we led with them basically being female first, it was obviously, and they have to come in all of the skin tones. Yes. So yeah, it led to a lot more, (laughs) a lot more emoji. So yeah, that was a really interesting one because (laughs) I personally, (laughs) I am a big fan of emoji and I use them all the time. Right. Mm-hmm. And back in, oh man, what is it? 2016, mm-hmm. 2015. Yeah. If you looked at the emoji on your keyboard that were gendered, what you basically saw is that all of the professions, be it all of the sports players emoji or the police man or the detective man, etc., they were all men. Mm-hmm. And if you looked at the, the emoji that were women Mm -hmm. it was the bride Mm. it was the dancer it Mm. was you know the girl getting her hair cut (laughs) and so it was kind of this question of why like why does that have to be the case why can't first of all all of those emoji exist in both genders and also what the hell what about (laughs) what about all these other professions that you know women and people do mm-hmm. that aren't represented. And so it was this like personal thing that I I just kind of felt, but recognize that as, you know, one of the companies that creates a set of emoji, right? So so Google has like the the Android emoji, right? Mm-hmm. Apple has theirs, Twitter has theirs, Facebook has theirs. There are a bunch of companies that have their own like emoji sets, right? Mm-hmm. You notice across these platforms they're kind of all slightly different. Mm-hmm. I was like, maybe we can just change ours. Mm-hmm. And then it turns out that there's this governing board of <laughs> emoji amongst other things called Unicode. The, the emoji so, governing board, huh? Wow. Pretty- yeah. So, so Unicode was this, this governing like, board of emoji. That's that's what I call it. I don't think that they would want to think that way. Um, but it, it actually makes a lot of sense because if you think about like if you have an Android and your friend has an iPhone, right, uh-huh. and you're sending an emoji, it's slightly different across the platforms, right, mm-hmm. which leads to all these funny articles about like how different emojis show up in different places. Mm-hmm. But so there is this kind of – they don't only focus on emoji, but, but Unicode, <laughs> what they try to do is essentially create consistency across platforms. So mm-hmm. give a certain amount of definition to 
what an emoji is and what it kind of should look like so that there is that cross-platform consistency so things aren't lost in translation. And they, on the emoji subcommittee, have representatives from all these different, you know, companies that create their own emoji sets. Mm. And so we, yeah, I and just a few other people, like me and three other people basically, wrote this proposal, kind of drafted like which professions we thought and presented a list of new professions all as female first. Mm but said that they should also have male counterparts and also propose that any existing gendered emoji have the relevant counterpart, right? Because boys also get their haircuts and, <laughs> <laughs> and women can also be detectives. And we, yeah, took it, took it to this committee. <laughs> and it was just cool because everyone was like, yeah, honestly, that makes sense. <laughs> and, and <for> now, <laughs> They're all this, you know, d- gender equality, like, but represented in emojis, which seems in many ways, like, I don't know, kind of, kind of funny or, or small, maybe. But if you think about it, like, that's the thing that everybody from, from young kids through to, you know, me, myself, my mom, like, <laughs> it's just there, it's on our phones, and we're using it, right. And so to kind of like, have representation mm-hmm. in this place where we are all seeing it on a daily basis. Yeah, it feels in some ways like a lot bigger than just, oh, it's an emoji. <laughs> it's actually really pretty cool. And right? <laughs> uh, I love the fact that, you know, you, you put this, first of all, I just love the idea that there is something that we're going to call the emoji governing people. <laughs> I just, uh, you know, yeah, they're cool. The international organization <laughs> what, of government for emojis. Yeah, I think that's just really cool, you know. Uh, but, uh, you know, that you're able to write this proposal and send that proposal in. And it must have been interesting for them because I wonder if there was like for that board, like, oh, how do we not know that? How do we yeah. not pay attention to that? How did that happen? Thank you for saving us from ourselves. <laughs> I now know way more about emoji than any person probably should. Um, <laughs> but obviously there are a lot of like, and, and they're facing this now in general with, I think, a lot of other diversity related requests for emoji, right? Like we, I mean, we even in our proposal acknowledged like not everybody actually identifies as male or female, mm-hmm. right? And so what does that mean in mm-hmm. terms of creating now like gender neutral emojis is something that they're like trying to do. Obviously like, you know, racial diversity, skin tones, there's a lot that goes into what truly is full representation, but also acknowledging like <laughs> at the end of the day, how many emoji do you want to have on this keyboard? Right. <laughs> I, I don't know if you experience this, but I certainly sometimes I'm, I, I suffer like I'm trying to find one and I'm scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. And I'm like, Oh my God, why can't I find this one thing that I'm looking for? There is like a million emoji right now. Right. So now if you imagine actually having 7 billion emoji that represents 7 billion different people. (laughs) You'll, you'll, you'll never find that one (laughs) that you're looking for. So it is this kind of like, it's this interesting balance. I don't know. I'm, I'm not as, I'm not still day to day, like involved with this kind of stuff, but it definitely, it is, it is hard to reach a level where everybody feels represented and heard and seen, especially in these kinds of like small micro moments, if you will, like the emojis on your emoji keyboard. You know, something that you mentioned earlier that it's really, it's sticking with me that I want to kind of come back to and and maybe talk in the context of the emoji project was you mentioned about like 
how some people are focused on the return on investment, right? And they're focused on like, what's the ROI of working on Morse code? What's the ROI of working on live caption or mm -hmm. the, the emoji keyboard being more inclusive? And you're just like, you know, well, that's not the approach that you've taken to solving the problem. Because you think about it as like creating more options, right? And like, I'm so curious, like what that actually looks like. Can you give us like a story or an example of like that kind of tension that you've maybe had to navigate inside the organization? you know, to make possible these very personal projects for you and turn them into like an opportunity for Google as a platform to tackle, you know, the issue, no matter how small, whether it's via emoji or, or like, you know, captioning everything on your phone. I think sometimes, and again, this is my, my purely personal sure. take on this, sure. yeah. but sometimes it's like you gather your crew, mm. you know? The crew that really, no matter what, is gonna is gonna find a way to to push this through, mm. even if it means like working late night and weekends on kind of your own personal mm. time a little bit. Like in some ways, that's kind of yeah, it almost seems crazy. But like the the emoji project was just I kind of I said this thing, I said it to a bunch of people, and ultimately found like the the two or three people who were like, yeah, yes, like <laughs> let's just do this you know, and kind of were like, we're going to make this happen. And sometimes that's really all you need until you can kind of like, you haven't enough to, to make the case that it, it's going to be big enough. Or, you know, sometimes it's a matter of like, and I think similarly with the, with the Morse code project a little bit, definitely in the beginning, when you tell people you want to make a Morse code keyboard, they're like, What's that now? <laughs> <laughs> we left that behind. <laughs> but but then you kind of, I mean, you know, brought Ayushi to tears just now, like <laughs> thinking about what that kind of means. And like, that was really just something that eventually like really spoke to the team. Like Gboard mm -hmm. is a team that works on, you know, creating all of these keyboards and all these different languages. And like their goal really is to help anyone be able to communicate. And so even when they're thinking about, you know, maybe building a keyboard for a language that is spoken by like a few hundred people, the point is those people should still be able to type like mm -hmm. in their language to each other, you know? Mm -hmm. And so this was just kind of another hmm. way into it that I don't think it would be useful to measure the success by like <laughs> how many people are now using Morse code. So I don't know, that would be kind of cool. Um, <laughs> But really kind of that idea of like, you know what, if we are a company that does actually stand for doing things for everyone, then this is just part of what that means. You know, we, we entered this conversation uh, this whole season talking about new actors who are stepping into the civic space. And I think what's really fascinating about this now, you know, I have been thinking about, okay, Google, they're out there, they're doing all this stuff. They're probably doing all these cool things that are really, you know, our traditional civic work. Mm -hmm. But actually now I'm looking at this as actually as part of that, which is really in order for our complex public to be able to communicate with each other, they actually have to have something they can communicate with. Mm. And part of mm -hmm. what I hear you saying is that, look, we're, we're in the business right now of breaking down the barriers that actually keep make it impossible for people to use this technology to communicate. And that's what we're doing. And you're doing it with the disability community, you're doing it with other kinds of communities. And one little piece of that is the keyboard, the data mm -hmm. entry piece. How do we actually do that there? 
that somehow that can enable something, mm-hmm. you know. And again, it's like you're doing something around helping the public do what it needs to do, which is communicate each other, but you're doing it in your lane. In your lane, yeah. You know, you're mm-hmm. in your lane, say, this is a piece we can do. Right. Now, somebody else has got to figure out what might they be talking about so that they come together. Right. And you're not saying, we know how to do that. You're right. saying, we can figure out this one piece. Right. That talking can happen. Right. And everyone can participate in it. Right. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That's like really, that's a really incredible, I don't know. It just like feels so appropriate, right? In terms of like thinking about all that's happening in the world and just to find a way to push the needle forward in just the way that you know is like if everyone could just do that, that would make for a much better environment, you know? Yeah, and you're doing it from the standpoint of I think there's two parts of that. It's not just like we want to do it for everyone, but we want, I mean, that we want to stay in our lane and do this. But we want to make sure it works for everyone. In order to make it for everyone, we actually have to figure out how to make it for all these small, distinctive groups. Mm-hmm. That's how we build it for everyone. Mm-hmm. Again, that's really not my idea. That's just the curb cut. Yeah. 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 It's been around for a long time. Yeah. Right? yeah. And then exactly. the digital curb cut. Yeah. Right. right. And I just, yeah, I, I fully believe in that. Mm-hmm. It's very real. It's very proven. And... The cool thing is that everybody, what you're talking about, you know, kind of staying in your lane and knowing what you have the opportunity to impact. Everybody has a lane. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. Everybody just does. And, yeah. and mine isn't only as, you know, somebody who happens to work at, at Google. Right. It's it's everything about me. I have many lanes, you know, lanes depending on like yeah. which which hat it is that I'm putting on. And I had different lanes like when I was a student versus mm-hmm. now. And that is a really great thing I think for everybody to recognize like what is the lane that I am in where I can have the biggest impact and there isn't a need for me to change lanes right Mm -hmm. (laughs) there's just a need for me to kind of go as fast as I can in this one Mm -hmm. that's wonderful I love that. I might have That's cheesed beautiful. that metaphor up way too much. I don't <laughs> okay. Okay. No, no, we, we take all the cheese here. Yeah, we can answer our guests here, if you want to work on this metaphor for us, sharpening it up, you know, <laughs> we no, would appreciate we that. It. Yeah. Uh, but as you said, you know, this curb cut effect, this is what we talk about when we talk about the importance of designing for the margins. Yep. Yeah. It is really the clear, I think, something we all need to embrace is we're out there uh, creating new solutions yeah. uh, or old solutions, reviving old solutions yeah. uh, for the world. Yep. Thank uh, you. Thank you so much, Nicole. Thank you so much for having me. That was fun, actually. Yeah? Yeah, I really enjoyed that conversation. You know, sometimes our conversations we have with people are, are really kind of deep and you go yes. like, wow. Yeah. You know, yeah. but this one, I actually, you know, a lot of interesting concepts. Yeah. But I found it fun. Yes. And isn't that interesting? We'd go inside of a technology company and have a fun conversation. <laughs> but uh, it's not what we normally think is going to happen there. <laughs> but I really enjoyed it. And I really appreciated, you know, this notion mm-hmm. of the power of what you can do when you know your lane. Yes. And you work out of your lane. And you know at the yourself. Best you can. Yes. And you know yourself. Yep. Yep. And you really work to try to bring yeah. the folks who are at the margins yeah. into how you think about working in your lane. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's like, I don't know, maybe that's why it felt fun, too, is like, you know, you're talking to somebody here who is very, like, self-aware of what they can and can't do and uses what they can do to the best of their ability. Yeah. And I don't know why right now Lin-Manuel Miranda is coming to my brain. And, you know, he's the, you know, 
the brain behind Hamilton. And and Lynn he says, you know, in interviews all the time, like this is all I've ever known my heart to be in. And he used that little lane he had, the stage, to turn it into a not so little lane, right? To turn it right. into like a huge platform to bring the conversation up. And the conversation that he brings up through Hamilton is is I'm not going to recount it, but it's huge, right? The impact is tre- tremendous. And yet it feels fun because here you have somebody that like just knows what they can do and how they want to use that right. to the best of their ability to push the needle forward in whatever that way is. And, you know, he's rapping on stage, getting his Emmy and talking about Puerto Rico and talking about the disaster there, but via rap yeah. and like improv and comedy. And it's like, brilliant and and humbling right at the same time and i think like that way of approaching the world is just so powerful to me and it makes me think about how we can use that approach not just when we're wearing our sort of company hat like in nicole's case but even in our personal lives well you know in that example you just gave i I think what's really important to remember in that is that stay in your own lane that's about where you really have your kind of expertise or your authority to move but that's not saying that's all of who you are. Right. You can still bring all you who you are into, into that, that exactly. and in relationship to that. Exactly. You know, we're actually in a school of urban planning. Yes. Right? Yeah. And we see a lot sometimes among people who are in the school, uh, students who are going through, of this kind of notion of do they know enough? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Because they're dealing with communities that are really complex and there's a lot of things and they're aware of all those things. And I think it's really interesting to to kind of push folks to say, well, yeah, what's the lane you want to move in as you engage that community? Right. And be really clear about that. Right. Because that's your way yeah. of actually being authentic with people in it. Right. You don't have to do everything. No one's expecting you to do everything. Right. You can't know every issue. You can't resolve every relationship, what yeah. you can do is say, here's the value I had. Right, right. And I really have that value. Right. Now, help me work with you Yeah. to bring that value. Exactly. And I think, you know, it, there's something really incredible about, like, how humility, in a personal sense, ties into empowerment for others. Yes. And, like, that as a sort of flip side to the same coin is something that I haven't considered until like a lot of these conversations this season and now with Nicole, you know, again, it coming to the front of like her personal humility or like, you know, Des and Candace from WBUR, their humility plays into the empowerment for a greater community. Yeah. And that's really beautiful. Many years ago, I was flying into Florida Mm -hmm. International Airport. Mm -hmm. I I was in Miami Mm -hmm. and there's this cafeteria, big old cafeteria. So I got some food, I'm sitting down at the table and I'm eating. Mm And, you know, I had my little tray and, you know, I wasn't as neat as I could have been. <laughs> and uh, I'm picking up everything and I'm getting ready. You know, I'm kind of have my napkin. I'm wiping a little bit yeah. of the table. And this guy comes over to me and he puts his hand on my shoulder and he says, this is my job. Oh. I want to do this job. Wow. You know? And wow. And what I loved about it was I was thinking, I got to clean up so the, they don't have to do as much. And he yeah. was saying, no, don't take that away from me. Mm. Right? <laughs> this is mine. And I'm proud of mm-hmm. what I do here. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I don't know why that story just came up, but maybe it's because wow. maybe sometimes this thing of staying in your lane causes discomfort. Mm. 
you know, because you're worrying about the other parts of things. Yeah, yeah. And, and not recognizing that other people may be doing things that they also want to do. Yeah. You know, right. and they want to do it with their own sense of pride. Right. And they don't want it kind of stripped away from them. Wow. Thanks so much, Caesar. I've been, I have been, and I still am Ayushi Roy. <laughs> and I'm still Susan McDowell. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. Thanks. Bye-bye. We're a production of the Department of Urban Studies and Planning at MIT with support from MIT's Office of Open Learning. Our sound is produced by Dave Lashansky. Our content by Julia Cubrera and Misael Galdamez. I'm Ayushi Roy. I'm Susan McDowell. And you can find us online at themove.mit.edu. And on our Medium site at medium.com forward slash themovemit, as well as our Twitter and Facebook. Thanks so much. Goodbye.